This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. We will get into the preaching of God's Word now. If you have a Bible, open it to Colossians chapter 4. Our second to last message in our Colossians series. We will be in Colossians chapter 4 starting at verse 2. While you're turning there, let me tell you about one of my favorite TV shows of all time. I hope you've seen The West Wing. It's the story of a fictional president, Josiah Bartlett, and his staff as they kind of carry out the work of the United States government. And there's a scene, it's about halfway through the series, where the president uh, appoints a new member of his senior staff. And as, as a part of that little ceremony, President Bartlett asks this new advisor to make a promise. He says, never doubt that a small group of committed people can change the world. Never doubt that a small group of committed people can change the world. And then he he asks this new deputy if he knows why. And this man replies and says, because it's the only thing that ever has. Never doubt that a small group of committed people can change the world because it's the only thing that ever has. It's a short scene. It's a little scene. It kind of gets me amped up just telling you about it now. And I love that idea. The only thing that has ever changed the world might have been that a big movement was the result. But it's small things done by seemingly ordinary people that lead to the biggest changes. And the same thing is true of the way that God works. There are a few famous Christians in history. They've led big rallies, spoken to massive audiences in stadiums. Maybe they've been influential. They've known world leaders. But by and large, the way that the message of Jesus and hope in him progresses and is moved around the world and tracks through history are not through stadium-sized gatherings. And it hasn't been men and women of great worldly power. God most often moves, almost always moves in the lives of people through the influence and the work of ordinary men and women. And whenever I say that, I just want to kind of prove it like this. Past experience has taught me that the strong majority of people sitting right here in this room are not here because they were moved at some massive rally. It wasn't because somebody who was famous and is going to go down in sort of the annals of church history did something. Most of us are here because somebody who the world would regard as ordinary, regular, not particularly special, was used by God to share the gospel, the good news that we can be drawn out of 
darkness into light, that we can have a heart of stone replaced with a live heart of flesh, and somebody fairly ordinary told that to us. And through the Holy Spirit, our heart was quickened, we responded in repentance and faith, and we now will live forever. Not because a great, great, great person, according to the world's eyes, did that, but because God used somebody completely ordinary to do that. It wasn't by some great orator. It wasn't by some great evangelist. I praise God for the Billy Grahams of the world and men and women like Winston Churchill can speak and nations listen, but God typically produces faith that leads to repentance through ordinary people. And the reason I begin there is because this second to last section of Colossians answers the questions, the question, how can ordinary Christians make sure others that know about the incredible invitation to life in Jesus? If you feel like you can't do much because you're just a regular Christian, this section says very much otherwise. It's that regular Christians are the ordinary means that God uses to spread his grace to others. So we can ask the question, what now for regular Christians? If you have read this letter and you've been working through this with us, you'll understand that Colossians is a master stroke of theology. The Christology, that is the, the explanation of Jesus Christ, who he is as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God incarnated as man, is incredible. This letter implores us to live fully in Christ. But it would be a mistake for us to read this and think that this letter is only meant for the super-Christian and it's only meant for people who are already Christians. Paul, who, who wrote this, his entire ministry was focused on bringing Christ to those who didn't know him yet. And his plan for that, Paul's plan, what wasn't, you know, he didn't say, we're going to find a few ultra-gifted people, and we're going to let them try to save the world. Paul's plan, because it's God's plan, was for average, and I mean that in the best sense of the word, average Christians who were faithful, loved God, and loved other people to go out and spread the gospel. And here we see what his plan is. Pray that God would give you opportunity. And when it comes, be bold and be clear. Pray that God would give you opportunity. And when it comes, be bold and be clear. And I want to read these verses in just a minute. But before I do that, I, I need to say just one thing. We have as a church a kind of a succinct, succinct statement uh, about the kind of people we want to be and about what we want to do as a church. And so if I was at the park with my kids and somebody found out I was a member of this church and then they said, well, what, what's your church about? Why are, you, why are you a church? Why are you here? This is how I would answer. I, I would actually just use these four words. 
building community, bringing Christ. We want to have the kind of love and faith that makes Jesus and his love non-ignorable. And in doing that, our hope as a church is that people would be moved from being people out there to becoming family in here. And I say all that because if I want to preach the vision of our church, if I want to preach the hope and the plan of our church from a single passage of the Bible, I think it might be this one that I would choose. It comes with a little appeal, and it comes with a little explanation. It's only five verses long, but I might go here to say this is what it means to build community and bring Christ. So follow along with me. So read Colossians 4, starting at verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us. God may open to us a door for the world to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. That I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Thinking about building community, bringing Christ, this has really just, just two categories for the best way that we do that. We do it by first praying, and second, we consider what it is that we say to other people. What we pray to God and what we say to people. And I'm acutely aware that what happens for many of us is when we start talking about prayer and speaking with other people about Jesus, the, the most normal Christian apprehension is to feel like, okay, great, we're talking about prayer, we're talking about evangelism, evangelism so now the guilt trip is coming. Virtually every Christian I've ever talked to feels like they don't pray enough and they're not very good at evangelism. And so this is what kind of we automatically think. You know, great, here is my periodic scolding that I, I'm not, you know, I don't pray a lot and don't share my faith with Jesus a lot. And so you kind of sit there and go, I get it, pastor, we're good, pray more, be bolder in my faith. But that, that's not what Paul's doing here. That's not what's happening. That's actually not what the Bible ever does. But it's, he's not doing that here. What he's doing is saying, if you believe in what he's already written, what's come before this in the letter, and if you want to see your friends and your family come into life with the real God and the living Christ, first pray, and then there's, there is a reality that we can't escape. We have to talk with other people about Jesus. Now, there are, there are stories that you will hear about a man or a woman, and they've never met a Christian. They're in some remote part of the world. 
They've never known a Christian believer. They've never read a Bible, and, and somehow God reaches them, and they put their faith in him. I believe that God has the power to do that. But it's rare. It happens like one or two times every few years. For the other two billion Christians in the world, which is a number you and I can't really comprehend, two billion Christians in the world, the way the rest of us come to know Christ is more of a Romans 10 kind of sequence. God works in your heart to reveal grace and to save. And he calls you and he appoints for you and he leads you to preach the good news to others so that they too might be saved and so the cycle would continue. So if you wonder, say, I'm just an ordinary Christian. I'm not particularly gifted in evangelism. I don't consider myself to be a great speaker. My knowledge of the scriptures is not what many other people I know seem to have. You're in good company. Because God means for you, and Paul's going to lay out here really quickly, how it is that God wants to use you in the lives of other people. And so let's talk about this. First, what we pray to God. Second, what we say to people. So the first verse that we read says, continue steadfast in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. The reason to pray with thanksgiving <coughs> is because without thanksgiving, prayer might begin to seem like a job or something that we're supposed to just check off our list. But that's the opposite of what thankful prayer is. That's begrudging prayer. On the other hand, if you can pray with thankfulness, grateful that God listens to you, appreciative that he's promised to work in response to the prayers of people who love him, and when people live uprightly, it, del it delights God, then your prayer won't seem like something you're obligated to do. It will be something that you are invited to do. And that is how God looks at prayer. That's what's true about God in relation to prayer. He listens when you pray. And he does things in response to your prayer. One thing that will transform your prayer life is regularly reminding yourself that God delights in your prayers. He doesn't say when I pray, you know, oh, great, here's fix again. Can't believe I'm going to have to listen to whatever, you know, comes out of his mouth for the next couple of minutes. What he actually says, same thing is true of you. Wonderful. My son has learned that in me, there is wisdom and strength and peace and hope. And now it gives me great joy. This is what God says. That he or she comes to me and asks for my unending supply of that which they need. And then you know what God does? He gives it. He gives it when we ask. It may not always come in the ways that we want it to, but for the children of God, 
I, I, bet, I, I bet I would put it to you like this. For the children of God, God will answer your prayer even the way that you want him to more often than I think you would realize. God delights to give good gifts to his children. There's a, a little story that Jesus tells about prayer where he asks this kind of rhetorical question. What father, when his child asks for bread or a fish, will give him a stone or a snake? The answer is no good father does that. So then Jesus says, if your earthly father, if your earthly fathers know how to give, give good gifts to their children, how much more so will God? He's the best father. He knows what to give his children when they come to him and they ask for it. So God isn't frustrated by your, by your prayers. He's blessed by them. It also says that we should be watchful in our prayers. Watchful how and, and, and watchful for what? On the night he was crucified, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, and he took with him a few of his closest disciples. And what he says to them is, my soul is, this is Matthew 26, my soul is sorrowful, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And then he goes by himself, and he prays for about an hour. And when he comes back, he finds his disciples sleeping. He wakes them up, and he reminds them of what's going on. And he says, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And that actually happens two more times until Jesus is taken captive by a large, angry mob. While Jesus is, is with his disciples, he would often tell them what's going to happen. So what happens here in the Garden of Gethsemane should not be a surprise to the disciples. But they have a hard time understanding it and, and even a harder time believing that it's going to happen. But then when it actually happens, they see it with their own eyes. They understand it. God gives them understanding in it. And he sends them out to preach the gospel all over the world. So they are transformed from men who were sleepy, who couldn't keep watch with Jesus. And they become the greatest ambassadors for the faith. God makes his appeal through them more than anybody else the world has ever seen. So to be watchful in prayer means this. To stay alert in prayer and to remain in prayer. Like Jesus told his disciples about his crucifixion and his death, he tells us something right now that's true about the world, about the way things will be and what's coming. The disciples were told he would be handed over, beaten, and crucified. He tells us that one day he will come again from heaven, and we should live expecting his return. So to be watchful in prayer means that every Christian should pray and live like we are expecting the return of Jesus imminently. 
So pray like he is alive and pray like he is coming soon. Moving from a perspective of prayer where where few things seem immediate because we think we have a lot of time to living like Jesus could return at any minute will transform the way we live. And imagine how much different our prayers would be if we always prayed as though Jesus could be returning at any moment. And that perspective is what will wake us up from a a kind of spiritual sleepiness that if we're honest, we often walk around in. Here's what's true. Uh, You know this and I know this. Your life, my life, could change in an instant, even today. And we have very little control over that. There are things that, we can, that can happen to us. There are phone calls that we can get that will change our lives in an instant. We can do nothing about it. But despite that being true, because it doesn't happen most days, we're sort of lulled into a pattern We don't pray with much fervor. We assume today will go very much like yesterday. So really, why would we pray any differently than we did yesterday? But this is what we're being called out of, church. A spiritual apathy where we fall asleep and we're being told to keep alert, watch, and to pray. Now look at some of the the things and the kinds of prayers that that Paul says we should make. Verse 3. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. So Paul is writing this letter under house arrest in Rome. And the reason for his imprisonment is his preaching of the gospel. So he has limited mobility... And from, I think, what we can tell historically, he is probably literally chained to a Roman soldier. There's something around, there's a a ring around his ankle, and on the other end of that is a large Roman man. And he can't go anywhere without somebody else. And if that were me, and I was writing to you, my church, from there, I think I know what I'd pray for. I'd be saying, get me out of here. Pray that I'd be released from this. I don't want this anymore. But that's not what Paul prays. He doesn't pray for an open cell door. He prays for an open evangelism door. And God actually granted his prayers. He writes to the Philippians uh, around the same time, and he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. I actually kind of feel bad for the guy who is chained to Paul because, I mean, it's like, hey, we got to do this. I mean, not only is Paul chained to this guy, this guy's chained to Paul. And most of the brothers having been confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more emboldened to speak the gospel 
without fear. Paul prays for boldness. And now in verse 4, that I may, may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Boldness and clarity. And we should pray for the same things, brothers and sisters in Christ. Boldness to preach and to teach and to speak, whether in the face of outright opposition or simply boldness to share the gospel when the message of Jesus won't be popular. And it's more so going to be the latter for us, isn't it? It's not that we're going to be out and out opposed in our preaching of the gospel. It's more just that it won't be popular. Whether it be our neighbors or friends, a coworker, somebody we happen to sit next to at a public gathering, a friend of our child, and we get to know the parents, something like that. We're not concerned that we might be imprisoned for our preaching of the gospel but we are concerned that they might think less of us if we share the gospel. So first, let us pray for boldness. Second, clarity. People are not saved by a fuzzy, inspecific gospel. They are saved when they are told that to confess your sins and repent of them in the name of Jesus Christ is your only hope for everlasting life. But to all who do that, all will be saved. It does not do people any favors to leave them confused about what saves, or who Jesus is, or even to borrow words from Scripture of what he demands from the world. The offer and gift of God's grace is free, but it costs everything. To lay down your life is to begin to truly live under the cross of Christ. And it doesn't help anybody when we're ambiguous about that. It doesn't help anybody to let them believe that they can still live an old life but just add Jesus on top. Jesus is not a cherry on a Sunday. Jesus is a whole new deal. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, let us speak with clarity. I was talking to a couple of brothers last night at a little birthday party. Let us be precise about what we mean when we say belief in Jesus Christ. We mean to confess our sin, turning away in repentance, and believing that God raised Jesus from the dead. This is the message that leads to life. And very quickly, we can do this next part very quickly. What we say then to people. So boldness and clarity, but how? Verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. That's not some time management principle. It goes back to the imminency of Christ's return. Folks, Jesus may come back. It may be later today. 
let's not waste the precious time that God has given us with other people. In verse 6, let us let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So he says in verse 5, walking. It's a euphemism or another way of saying living, all of life. We walk through life. And then he says, let your speech be gracious. You will not make friends and you will not win a hearing with people if you are harsh. If you come off as superior, believing yourself to be smarter than other people. And you won't, win, you won't make any friends if people think that you don't genuinely care for them, you're just a project to them. There should be a graciousness about Christians that is unique in the world because God has been uniquely gracious with us. There has never been anything like the grace of God. And God is clear with us. He does not save because of our morality. He does not save because of our intellect or our virtue. He saves because he is a God of grace. He has wisdom, and we are often so, so poor in our judgment. But he does not berate us. It will not help you in sharing the hope that you have in Jesus to make other people feel like they're less than you, that you have done a better job of decision-making in life. And friends, that's not what God does with us. He opens to us grace while we were yet sinners. He does not expect that first we would handle our own sin problem and then once we are acceptable to him, draw us in. While we were at literally our darkest point, do you understand that when God saved you, you couldn't have been any more dead? Princess Bride, not mostly dead, dead, dead. That is when God turned you toward himself. And so let us not look at another person and say, well, they don't seem worthy or ready or like a good candidate for the gospel because you weren't either. But God has saved you if you are in Christ. This is how the world has changed. It is not changed in the majority by people who are just extraordinarily gifted. Those are so few and far between. I saw a lot of heads nod earlier. The vast majority of us are here because somebody known personally to us that would not be regarded as great in the world's eyes was used of God to know his grace and to become his child. And so if God could do that in your life through somebody else who seems ordinary, 
believe and trust and obey that he might use you to do it in the life of somebody else, though you feel ordinary. That's how the world has changed. Never forget, always believe that the greatest things that God will do will come through an ordinary means because he gets the most glory that way. And so let us do this. Let us go forward being watchful in prayer, believing that Jesus might come at any time. And so let's make a good use of the time. Being bold, being clear, always seasoning what we say with grace, that God might use regular people such as us for a great and mighty purpose. Let's pray. God, we are but a a, a humble church, a humble people. But I pray if it be your will that you would do a great work in us, a great work of your glory, and that men and women might be saved. Not so that we would get credit. Not so that we would feel as though we have earned a standing with you, but because we have been given grace through Jesus, it's a joy to be able to share it with others. It's in the beautiful name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.